Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Today we begin reading the Iliad, but as usual before we start, let's go over what we know about the author and a few other things that will be useful over the next 24 weeks. Well, 48 if you consider that some of this will also be useful when we get to the Odyssey. And since I've mentioned both works by Homer, let's start with a simple mnemonic for you to remember how to spell the Iliad and the Odyssey. There is nothing ill about the Iliad, and there is nothing odd about the Odyssey. So, Iliad has one L, and Odyssey has one D. These two epics are attributed to a man named Homer, and we know, well, next to nothing about him, right down to whether or not he was real. There is no contemporary evidence of him, but that's in part because we don't know exactly when that contemporary would be. We don't know exactly when the Iliad and the Odyssey were written. There are theories that the two epics were written by different people or that they were written by groups of people collectively known as Homer. But for simplicity's sake, let's work on the assumption that he was singular and wrote both. We can guess the time that he lived based on his influence. We know that there is an entire epic cycle about the Trojan War that was written after the Iliad, so Homer predates that. Herodotus, who isn't always the most reliable of sources, claims that Homer predates himself by 400 years. And since we know when Herodotus wrote, that's another way we can try and pin down approximate dates. Lattimore, whose translation I'll be using for the Iliad, uses a variety of sources to propose a date around the 8th century BCE. He also fully acknowledges that this is nothing more than an educated guess. But given the span of ancient Greek history, it is reasonable to consider this to be a reasonable time period, give or take a century or two. So as we're reading, we need to remember that the work predates the ancient Greece that we are most familiar with. The military city-state of Sparta and the democracy of Athens are far in the future at the time the Iliad, the Iliad and the Odyssey were written. And this helps explain some of the hallmarks of the poetry found within these works. After a brief break, I'll go into more detail on this point. Now, as we read through the works of Homer, it is important to remember that the culture in which they were written was largely oral. This does not mean that writing didn't exist, but most people were illiterate and society therefore functioned as an oral culture. Walter Ong, in his seminal work on orality and literacy, shows how our brains work differently in our modern literate culture than they would if we lived in an oral culture. Yes, these are all broad strokes and generalizations, but you will see them applied in Homer. Difference one, oral culture is additive and literal culture is subordinate. This refers largely to the use of conjunctions. Oral cultures use and, there was this, and it was that, and that thing was also this, and this was also that. The thoughts are adding together to create the picture. Subordinate conjunctions take away. There was this except for the part that wasn't. Oral culture adds thoughts and literate culture subtracts them. Difference two. Oral culture is expansive and descriptive. Literate culture is efficient and analytic. Oral culture will describe the little girl with dark brown hair, while literate culture will call her a child. But which picture is easier to remember? The one described by the oral culture. And if all of your culture is transmitted orally, it makes sense for it to be more expansive and descriptive. Difference three, oral culture is repetitive and literate culture is linear. 
This is another one that makes sense. If you're reading a book, you can always flip back to remind yourself what someone said in the last chapter, but in oral culture, you can't do that. You have to repeat the speech, and we'll see this a lot in the Iliad. Difference four, oral culture is natural and literate culture is artificial. As we've already seen in the past two differences, oral culture works the way our brains do, so it is a more natural structure of thought than found in written works. Difference five, oral culture is traditionalist and literate culture is speculative. You might also see this written as oral culture is conservative, but since this is not meant to refer to a political ideology, I'm using traditionalist instead. If all of culture is transmitted orally, there is only so much room for new stories, and the keepers of the knowledge are the elders in the community. Once the stories can be written down, there is room for new knowledge, and the culture shifts away from the elders as keepers of knowledge. Different six, oral culture is concrete and literate culture is abstract. In oral culture, ideas are referenced to the concrete world. An example of this is the catalog of ships in the Iliad. In literate culture, it would simply give a list of names and the number of ships each person was in charge of. The list is very abstract. In the Iliad, we will see that there is discourse given about each of these people as well as the number of ships, giving concrete grounding to the list. Different seven, oral culture is emotional and literate culture is detached. What is more exciting, someone giving a speech or just reading the speech in the newspaper? Okay, maybe don't answer that. Difference eight, oral culture is empathetic and literate culture is objective. Oral culture requires identification with the knowledge. Writing separates the person from the knowledge, making it more objective. Difference nine, in oral culture, the meanings of words are tied to the situation. In literate culture, we have dictionaries to keep track of all of these meanings. In oral culture, all of the other aspects of communication, our hands, our faces, our intonations, replace the need for a dictionary. The situation provides the meaning of the words. And this is something you can see if you're ever in a situation where you don't speak the language. When I was studying in Rome, I spent part of my spring break with my friend Grit in Germany. And one evening, Wei went out with a group of her friends. Now, I don't speak German. So Grit was doing her best to translate for me, and the whole group tried to keep me filled in, but the conversation was fast and bubbly, so there was a lot that wasn't translated. But I still understood much of what was being said because of those other aspects of language. I couldn't tell you the words, but I understood the feelings. It's kind of like that. In that situation, the words made sense even when I didn't have the dictionary of people translating for me. I know that's a lot, and I don't expect you to remember all of these things exactly, but as we read through the Iliad and the Odyssey, I hope that there will be moments that you read and think, this is kind of odd, and then think, I bet this is one of those orality versus literacy things, and you'll probably be right. We'll take one more quick break, and then we'll talk a little bit about the Trojan War and the mythology surrounding it. The Iliad and the Odyssey are part of an epic cycle that tells the story of the Trojan War, and they are presumed to be the oldest works within this cycle. But like Star Wars, there's a release order and a chronological order. So the Iliad and the Odyssey are oldest by release date, but not necessarily the oldest by chronology. Now, you probably know a lot about the Trojan War, at least in snippets. There was the horse thing, right? And Helen with the face that launched a thousand ships. Oh, and Achilles with his heel, that Meshuggana heel. There was the thing with the golden apple. Maybe you know that one? No, not the one with Atalanta. That's a different golden apple story. 
There's a whole lot that we know from oral tradition or from other sources, but basically none of this is in the Iliad or the Odyssey, or it's only tangentially mentioned. Here's what you need to know. Eris, the goddess of strife, decided to have a little fun. So she flew into a party the gods were having and tossed out a golden apple on which she'd written, For the fairest. Aphrodite, Hera, and Athena got into a fight over which one of them met that criteria. Zeus, not being too much of a fool, decided they should get some mortal to decide and picked out this Trojan prince named Alexandros, but who had the nickname of Paris. The goddesses were not above bribery and each offered Paris glorious gifts. He chose to think with his lower brain and opted with Aphrodite's gift of the most beautiful woman in the world even though that most beautiful woman in the world was already married. Aphrodite took Paris to Sparta, where the most beautiful woman in the world lived with her husband. And Helen and Menelaus were great hosts. And Helen may or may not have fallen in love with Paris, but whether or not she did, she somehow wound up leaving Sparta and going home with Paris to become his wife. And Menelaus, of course, declared war. Why the thousand ships? Well, because Helen was the most beautiful woman in the world, everybody wanted to marry her, and everyone knew that this was going to be trouble. So Odysseus proposed a vow. Every man who wanted to marry Helen vowed to stand by the man who got to marry her, should she ever wind up leaving him. And since Helen has gone to Troy, all of Greece is now allied against Troy. Now, there are some parts of the story that we won't see. That Meshuggah heel. Not part of the story. The horse? It comes up in the Odyssey, but it's not a big part of the story. Everything I just described? Homer assumes you already know the backstory. And now you do, so we're ready to start. The next episode should already be in your feed. I'll talk to you then about Book One of the Iliad. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.